Politics as Usual is a global partners governance podcast brought to you by gpgovernance.net. Hello and welcome to Politics as Usual. My name is Greg Power and I'm the Director of Global Partners Governance and this is the first in what we hope will be a series of podcasts interviewing people who work in and around politics in different parts of the world. Now, the first question is, of course, why anybody would want another podcast added to the giant podcast bin, as Adam Buxton puts it, or why anybody would want that little red circle next to the podcast app on their phone to be reading 136 unplayed episodes as opposed to 135. Well, I think there are three reasons why we think this is important and timely and hopefully interesting. The first is that if you do the sort of work that Global Partners Governance does working with Uh, politicians and political institutions in some very complex and fragile and difficult parts of the world trying to make change happen, you invariably come across some fascinating and inspiring people who are trying to make change happen in their own countries, often against all the odds. And those people are always insightful and you always learn something from them. And although the, the general mood towards politics around the world is sceptical, if not cynical, towards the motivations of of politicians. In every country in which I've worked over the last 20 years, I have always come across politicians who I have found inspiring and who I have learnt from. And part of the purpose of this podcast is to try and tell some of those stories about what motivates politicians in trying to make change happen and how they went about it. The second is that in the last few years in the development field, Uh, there's been a general recognition that politics matters, that if you're trying to change education or health or any public service, often it's integrally related to the politics of that country. The problem is that this has almost turned into a dismissiveness now, that, you know, well, of course we understand that politics matters. Everyone knows that. Tell us something new. Well, the problem is that, as Rory Stewart, the Department of International Development minister, put it at the launch of the World Development Report in March, the problem is that A lot of the people saying this, you know, that of course we understand that politics matters, are exactly the people who do not understand anything about politics. Politics is not something that can be reduced to a framework or a template or a log frame, which can then be rolled out in country after country after country. Politics is infinitely complex. And it's to do with the interaction of power and interest and personality. It's to do with the human beings and their motivations which causes politics to be as it it is, and that's where change is going to come from. And that relates to the third issue, which is the personal dimension to all of this. If you're trying to get politics to change, it's about understanding why politicians are behaving the way they're behaving in a particular context and circumstance. And it often means understanding what is driving them. What is it that they as individuals want to achieve and how they want to achieve it? And so that's the point of this podcast, is to try and uncover some of those human stories of people working in and around politics, why they got into politics in the first place, how they tried to make change happen and what they are trying to achieve now. Um, And all of these themes will also be uh, part of a book which I'm trying to write, which I hope will be out later this year, again under the title Politics as Usual, which will look at exactly this. Why is it that that politics is as it is? What is motivating politicians to behave in this way? And how might we help the process of change to occur in some very difficult and complex places? Over the next few weeks, we'll interview several people. We hope to produce one of these every couple of weeks. And we've already recorded a few in advance, including Tom Carruthers from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And anybody who uh, is aware of the the work on democratization over the last 20 or 30 years will be aware of Tom's work. He's a brilliant thinker and very influential in the field. And uh, the interview with him is fascinating about his own story about how he got into this world and how he approaches this sort of work. But also Jackie Smith, as a former Home Secretary in the UK, who's been working with us at Global Partners Governance over the last few years on a variety of projects and the experience that she brought um, as a Home Secretary, as a Chief Whip, as Education Secretary as well. And also David Halpin, who's the head of the Behavioural Insights team, uh, the Nudge Unit, which has been working uh, based in London, but working with governments right around the world to try and change the way that governments think about how they change public behaviour, not by coercing them but by nudging them into um, certain new habits and behaviors 
trying to create new behavioral norms. All of those are interesting and they're all coming up. We hope to produce, as I say, one every couple of weeks um, and keep up a regular stream. This week, we start with Peter Hain. Um, I should declare an interest in that I used to work for Peter uh, as a special advisor in the Labour government between 2003 and 2005. And his story is is fascinating. Um, having been brought up in South Africa, um, he and his family were forced to leave in the 1960s because of his parents' uh, activities uh, protesting against apartheid. And when they got to the UK, Peter... Um, very quickly became a leader of the anti-apartheid movement, particularly around the boycotts trying to prevent the South African rugby and cricket teams playing in the UK. Um, he tells a fascinating story about this and then became uh, a Labour MP and a minister in the Foreign Office um, and was Secretary of State for Wales and also Secretary of State for Northern Ireland at a time which was very important for the Northern Ireland peace process. And a couple of years ago, he was uh, made a peer and is now in the House of Lords. I will let Peter explain all of this uh, in much more detail because he's much better at telling these stories than uh, than I am. But I hope you enjoy it. And without further ado, here's the interview. How does it feel to be in the in the House of Lords? Because you've been in the Lords now for a year, I guess, just about. Being in the Lords is not somewhere I ever expected to come. And until Ed Miliband, out of the blue, asked me to step down from the Commons when I'd already been chosen to stand again at the 2015 election for another term, it was a complete shock. So I had to give it some very serious meaning of life thought. <laughs> and my answer to him when he asked me completely unexpectedly was, I don't agree with the place. I think it should be elected. To which his reply was, that's exactly why, if I'm prime minister, I want you there, because I need people who believe in a reformed uh, yeah. second chamber. Anyway, the, it's, it's better than I thought it would be. It's a lot more enjoyable. And what's particularly good about this period is it's the first time in the history of Parliament that a Conservative government doesn't have a majority in the Lords. Conservative governments have always had automatic majorities. Mm. Now, because Labour under Tony Blair took out 600-odd hereditary peers, overwhelmingly Conservative in, in composition, they are these this Tory government for the first time is facing a situation that all Labour governments have always faced and before us Liberal governments, which is it can't control the Lords. Mm. So you can actually win things, you've got to be quite careful about where you pick your battles. And what's the biggest difference between the Commons and the and the Lords? I mean it's, on a day to day level. It's much politer. <laughs> it's less adversarial. It, people are just nicer to each other. Partly because most people here are either at the end of their political careers yeah. and are not striving to get up the, the greasy ladder, and uh, or alternatively are never actually wanted a political career. Do you? I mean, for somebody who is for for as long as you know, I can remember, you've wanted to reform the House of Lords to be there and working. Does it feel like an important place to be? Does it feel like you're doing important stuff? I think you've got to have a sense of proportion about it and uh, not have any illusions. But you can occasionally make um, speeches which I think are listened to, whether it's on Syria, or you c which I've done, or you can, um, you can actually win some votes. Because the Lords tends to scrutinise bills much more effectively, mm. with much greater deep forensic and expert detail than the Commons does. And so there's a chance, for example, on the Wales bill, there's a new bill affecting Wales. And of course, I was a Welsh MP and a former Secretary of State for Wales. So we have actually been able to get some changes, which you probably, which the Commons were not able to get. Yeah. So in that sense, it um, can be productive, but I don't think you should have any illusions about it. And what would your 18-year-old self think 
if it <laughs> being horrified, <laughs> being absolutely horrified. Because it's the, um, the, I mind you, I'd have been horrified about being an MP, <laughs> well, let alone being in the Lords. I was going to ask you about this because having gone from you know in the and we'll come on to it in a minute about being portrayed as a firebrand in the in the late sixties and early seventies to then becoming in a member of Parliament. And you were a member of Parliament for what, 30 years? For 24 years. 24 years. For nearly a quarter of a century. So what, what prompted you to, to go into politics, in, if you like, formal politics, having had that background as well, an activist? the anti-apartheid struggle was in my blood because of my parents' activism during my childhood in Pretoria. The fact that they were jailed and issued with banning orders and then they stopped my dad working as an architect and we had to come into exile against our wishes, both... I and my younger brother and two sisters, and obviously my mum and dad, because we had no income. Uh, that was in 1966 when I was 16. And so. so that, just, uh, just to focus on that, was that the point at which both your mum and dad were simultaneously banned? So, in theory, they, couldn't, they weren't allowed to talk to each other because any. My, my, mother, my mother was banned in 1963. Oh. And, my, and one of the clauses in a banning order was you cannot communicate with another banned person. It's designed to take you out of politics entirely. You can't be quoted in public. You can't take part in social gatherings of more than one other person. You can't take part in any politics. And there was this clause saying you cannot communicate with another banned person. So when they banned my dad a year later, this presented them with a, a unique dilemma, <laughs> which actually meant that they had to give my mum and dad special permission, exceptionally as banned people, to talk to each other because they'd never banned a married couple before. But apparently it was Orwellian in, 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 that, in that sense. There were lots of other examples of that. what were they that. banned for? They were banned for basically normal political activity, campaigning, organising in black townships, uh, supporting Nelson Mandela's defiance campaign for black workers not to uh, go into work on a particular day. Uh, for they were standing candidates in elections, writing to the newspapers. My mum used to particularly uh, work hard in the courts on behalf of uh, of African defendants, often kids who were just pulled up on terrorism charges for just protesting, walking down the street. Um, and uh, you know, it was a really grim police state. So it was things that you wouldn't consider in the context of British politics to be exceptional at all. Uh, they were never involved in any uh, secret underground activity other than when they were banned, who did things they shouldn't have done. But they were never involved in any kind of guerrilla activity yeah. or anything like that. Yeah. And so, th you, sorry, I interrupted you, you were explaining. This, this was a situation when you were, so it was 66, so... Yeah. You were in your late teens? I was 16 at the time, and we started our entirely fresh life in London, stayed at a friend's uh, house, because my mum and dad didn't have any money, had nowhere to stay, and uh, this friend put us up, and which is one of the reasons I became a Chelsea Football Club supporter, because <laughs> the nearest <laughs> the nearest team to was Chelsea, so right, we, right. we looked at a map of, Lond of, of London, my brother and I in Pretoria, and we became Chelsea supporters. Uh, so and that was so the we of Osgood and uh, Osgood and Charlie Cook, Peter yeah. Osgood, Charlie Cook, Terry Venables, George Graham, Harris, Chopper Harris, all of those uh, those characters. Uh, and you know, I I then my mum and dad joined the anti-apartheid movement um, when they arrived, and I start. I think I joined a year or so later, and I started going with them to meetings, becoming more and more interested. And then the. South Africans announced that they were bringing across a, um, a rugby tour, mm. which again was a, a whites-only one because sports tours were all selected on yeah. the grounds of, of, of race. You had to be white to represent your country. Yeah. Sport was rigidly segregated from national level uh, right down to club and school level. And, and I'd always been mad about sport, and in the meantime, a South African coloured cricketer, that's to say in South African racial terms, mixed blood cricketer called Basil Oliveira, yeah. had come to England in the early 60s, wasn't allowed to play cricket at home, and achieved um, such heights here yeah. in Britain yeah. that he 
was selected for the England team. And then the South, when they were due to tour South Africa, the South African government blocked him coming yeah. and said, and so the English cricket authorities cancelled the tour. And then nevertheless, within six months, went ahead with an invitation to the South Africans to come across yeah. a few years later. And I was outraged about this. So when, sorry, when Dolivier was playing, uh, or prevented from playing cricket, were you in South Africa at the time? Were no, you, you we, we were prevented. We were in South Africa when he came over right. in, I think, 1960 yeah. and started working his way through county cricket. And by the time we got here, he was selected, and we were thrilled about it, actually, for the England team in 1966. Yeah. And he played a few years and continued playing and being an absolute star of the team. And then um, came this uh, complete standoff where the... South African Prime Minister said they would not allow England to tour if Dolivera was a member. Yeah. So the tour was stopped. But despite that, the English cricket authorities, as if nothing had happened, yeah. invited um, South Africa to tour in 1970. And I just remember feeling outraged and thinking, we've got to stop this. And it was a period, this is 1968-69, a period of direct action, student sit-ins, the Paris students had revolted in, uh, in 1968, big Vietnam demonstrations that I was going in, started getting involved in. I joined the Young Liberals, who were very radical at the time, and yeah. got involved in anti-Vietnam war protests and protests about Ian Smith's illegal re rebellion in, in Rhodesia. And um, then, because of my sports interests in this decision to nevertheless invite the English cricket team, I thought we should do something about it, and I thought, well, let's apply direct action tactics to sports matches, which had never happened before. The anti-apartheid movement had always organised pickets outside Lord's Cricket Ground or Twickenham Rugby Ground or wherever it might be. And uh, so what we did was we set upon a, a tactic of uh, a strategy of running on the pitch. Yeah. And the rugby tour, Springbok rugby tour was due to occur at the end of 1969, that's nine months before the cricket tour was due and so we used that as a dummy run and there were big pitch invasions we laid siege to the team's hotel on one occasion in their London hotel on the eve of the match against England international match against England we booked a young woman into the team's hotel and she went around during the middle of the night putting a solidifying agent into all the players' door locks <laughs> so they couldn't get out in the morning and they had to break the doors down. And then we drove the team's coach. As they were about to board the coach, we managed to get somebody into the driving seat and drove it away and crashed it. So, <laughs> so we were, all that kind of thing was going on. Um, so I became very notorious and very well known. Well, but I was gonna, I mean, always been interested, how did that evolve around... You was it your? I mean, well, it was my idea about the direct action, but, but I you never expected to, to be. A, a yeah, another grouping. Well, a few there were a few young liberals, a few anti-apartheid activists. Then there were matches of a of of a cricket team in the summer of nineteen sixty nine, a private cricket team that mm. we identified a South African one, and you know, then people in Oxford demonstrated against it. There was a tennis match in Bristol. There were demonstrations by anti-apartheid activists, and they started taking up this direct action, uh, invading, actually interrupting the, the uh, interrupting play, whether it was tennis or cricket or whatever it was. But I never expected, when we formed a campaign called the Stop the Seventy Tour campaign in September 1969, I never expected to be leading it. And then people asked me to do it, so I was only 19 at the time. Right. I'd never really spoken at public meetings uh, properly before uh, and I remember turning up in Liverpool at my first meeting at a student union meeting and walking in and travelled up out of London one of the first times I'd ever left London and I arrived in the student union hall and there was 600 people there and it was absolutely packed I mean I had to walk down the aisle threading my way between people sitting on the floor and in all the seats and so on so I suddenly found myself leading this, um, being chair of the campaign uh, and leading it and becoming the public spokesman and, and so on, and appearing a lot on television and radio and uh, travelling all over the country speaking at protests and every Springbok match we had demonstrations, yeah. so I'd visited a lot of them. Um, and 
that gradually escalated to the point where we had mounted such a pressure and such a campaign that everybody knew we were capable of wrecking the cricket tour. And there were hundreds of thousands, there were a hundred thousand activists, if not more, ready to do yeah. this. And the great, the great sort of thing about it was it was not just everybody coming to London to march t through Trafalgar Square or wherever. Yeah. It was actually, you could demonstrate in your own area, in Manchester, in Birmingham, in Nottingham, in Cardiff, wherever it was, and so you could mobilise on a genuinely national scale, and you could mobilise masses of people. But how do you how do you do? I'm fascinated. How do you do that in an era long before, you know, email or mobile phones? How do you organise that number of people? It seems almost you've tapped into something, and it's spontaneous. If well, it did take off. I mean, you just had telephones. I mean, I was at university. And I used to, in, my, in the lunch break in between lectures, go into a call box at, uh, at outside the university um, lecture campus, a telephone box, and literally receive phone calls from journalists and organisers for the hour or so that I had free. They knew I'd be in there. And uh, messages were relayed from the campaign headquarters, which happened to be our, our small flat in southwest London where my mum would um, do this. So, you know, having been the act leading activist with me dishing out the occasional leaflet as a teenager in Pretoria, she became the, the secretary of the campaign by default. So you, you didn't have social media, you didn't have mobile phones, you didn't have email. It was old-fashioned letters and telephones and actually but 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 the fact that it was all locally orientated and of this huge publicity momentum because it was sport had never been hit by political protests before mm. and it was therefore on the sports pages as well as the news pages and it was creating an enormous impact yeah. in television terms and so on so the thing just took off and how did that because you were at the epicenter of all this yeah right? i guess I mean, this is, as you say, on the tabloids, on the front and back pages, it was Hain the Pain. Oh, definitely. Um, yeah, and a lot worse than that. Suddenly to be thrust into, into that position, this must have been completely disoriented. I don't think it's dis... I mean, we'd been used to attacks from the security services and hostility from the public. My mum and dad <coughs> had, and indirectly we had as kids um, back in Pretoria. So it wasn't that that worried me so much. It was actually that I wasn't particularly, you know, I wasn't, I'd never, wouldn't be seen dead in a school play or singing on a stage or anything. And here I was suddenly, you know, the front figure and yeah. making speeches and appearing on TV and all of that. Um, but you just, it was a cause I strongly believed in. It was, we were mobilizing. I, it was causing consternation back. Uh, by the uh, in South Africa amongst the white community and a fantastic sort of uh, boost to the the black majority. And when he came out of prison and I met Nelson on Mandela for the first time, my parents had obviously worked with him back in Pretoria in the late 50s and 60s. When I met him for the first time in 1991, and he said to me, you know, this at the time you were doing this, there was a news blackout on Robben Island. And it was the only news that got through was your protests because about anything. Because um, our warders, who are all Springbok fanatics and some of the most you know, prejudiced, uh, ill-educated individuals, white warders, uh, were absolutely frustrated and exasperated yeah. beyond belief and took out their frustration on Mandela and his comrades and blamed them for the demonstrations unwittingly and not know and unknowingly communicating something vital to them was that there was this mass movement. So they actually Britain. suffered in the short term because of what you were doing. Yes. <laughs> they did, yeah. <laughs> well, one of my one of my close closest friends of my parents and a, a good friend of mine subsequently uh, was in prison in Pretoria, a white political prisoner, and he said you could actually tell by the quality of the food whether really? the at night, after a Saturday demonstration, whether the demonstration had gone well or you know had only gone off half cock yeah. but Mandela felt that this was a key part of the, the struggle he did yes and so did Governor Becky who was a fellow um, a prisoner and Ahmed Kathrada a, a number of them told me that subsequently and, and and certainly now people of that generation will all say that when I when I go back to South Africa because you see at the time 
It may seem odd because hitting sport, well, what does that matter in the great tide of things? But South Africa was spurned, expelled from the uh, Commonwealth, constantly demonized in the United Nations as they saw it. They were regarded as a pariah in the world politically, but then they were fated and given hospitality and treated as equals on the sports fields of the, of the world, particularly in the Commonwealth countries like um, uh, Britain and, and Australia and New Zealand. And, and so it gave them immense compensation that um, the mighty Springboks would tour and there they were wined and dined in dinners afterwards and treated like anybody else. So to stop them, to prevent them having that, was very, very, it was a big, big blow. And you couldn't win very many victories. It was very hard to get a military embargo, mm. which we, we called for. It was very hard to get trade sanctions, really hard stuff because economic self-interest comes into play here. So this was a, a way of, of achieving an absolutely decisive win. Mm. And remember, this was at a time, and it was followed by the stopping of the cricket tour in 1970, was followed by expulsion from the Olympics isolation from world, all world sport and, you, that, and I mean, that, that was a victory at a time yeah. when the resistance inside had been closed down, the leadership was all on Robben Island the, my parents um, people like us had been banned the opposition had been literally banned and closed down yeah. and you see that, that was it, it's difficult for me to tell because it's sort of uh, for people of my generation or younger just to understand how bad it was in South Africa yeah. in the late 60s and early 70s. But that, the Stop the Tour campaign in particular, was got so much publicity and was seen as so effective that everything that followed subsequently can be traced, traced back to that, can't it? Well, it was a, it was a cr crucial success at the time. I mean, the anti-apartheid movement's membership here, the general anti-apartheid, British anti-apartheid movement's membership trebled, and it just went from strength to strength. And uh, we then had the boycott Barclays Bank campaign, which forced the disinvestment from Barclays, uh, of Barclays Bank from South Africa. It was a famous victory, basically because of, of, of boycotts on student campuses. Yeah, I was a student at the time. You're a student at the time, that. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that, but that came off the back of the Stop the Tour. And, and you know, the anti-apartheid movement had been given a huge boost. So in a sense, the momentum... You, you can't really say everything's traced back to that, but the momentum was established there uh, in a big way. Yeah. And how much did you, I mean, when you started it, how much, were you expecting anything, any of, what were you I, expecting? I, was, I had a feeling we could stop the cricket tour. I didn't really know how, yeah. and I was determined to do it, and I felt the direct action would work, but uh, I had no idea that we would we'd generate such a mass movement, to the point where the cricket tour was stopped in May, 1970, um, about three weeks before it was due to start, and the pressure had been building up, in it. and I was really worried at that time that the whole thing was actually, that there was so much uh, activity being generated uh, that it could actually r result in big confrontations and possible violence. The thing had kind of, you know, escalated massively, and the threat of boycott to the Commonwealth Games in Edinburgh race relations in Britain were starting to be affected as well. There was lots and lots of issues. Um, and actually the Labour cabinet at the time considered a request by the then Home Secretary to prosecute me for conspiracy, uh, James Callaghan, who became Labour <laughs> Prime Minister. Actually, um, yeah, Tony Benn initially told me about that discussion in the cabinet, but then it was revealed when the 30-year the uh, rule on you know confidential cabinet really? papers, uh, because because I was actually <laughs> leading a conspiracy. <laughs> you were trying to overthrow the state. So no, no, I wasn't trying it. to overthrow the state. It wasn't treason. <laughs> it was a conspiracy. But you know, running on on the on pitches and stopping matches uh, actually wasn't a criminal offence because it was trespass. But if you put conspiracy in front of it, it yeah. became a criminal offence. And I was prosecuted and landed up in the old Bailey. Um, two years later, on a, but it was a private prosecution financed by the South Africans for a, for a month-long trial in the Old Bailey. Mm. Uh, but that's another story. Was that, that was, uh, I was going to ask you a bit about that, because after the Stop 70 tour, 
um, you, you continue to be active in, yeah. in politics, and the South African Security Services were clearly after you, yes. <laughs> which emerged in you know in one of your books. You, you talk about about yeah. some of these incidents, and there was um, you were you were was it what you're referring to there? Was that you being framed for a, a bank robbery? There were three things. Yes, it was. Yeah, Yeah. there were three things that happened to me. It's sort of retaliation. The one was I was sent a letter bomb in June 1972, which arrived amidst a pile of campaign mail on the family table. I was living at home um, with my parents in southwest London, and my young sister opened the, the the post, and there was this this horrendous um, construction of of consoles and wires and uh, a timing device that the when they descended on the house the IRA bomb squad because IRA Irish uh, terrorism was very active at yeah. the time bombs going off in London and so on uh, arrived at the house um, and took the bomb away and made it safe and said there was a problem with the timing mechanism otherwise that was the only reason it didn't go yeah, off it would have been blown up the whole I would have been blown up the family would have, the whole house it was a serious powerful bomb but it was of a kind that was that were they were sending the apartheid security police were sending these across the world to target uh, Mandela's supporters around the world so for example Ruth First uh, the ANC uh, leading ANC activist Joe Slover's wife and and a big figure in her own right in the struggle she was murdered by this similar letter bomb in Mozambique uh, and others were murdered by by those letter bombs. So I was very lucky well, in that respect. Send, just, just, this is going to sound like a banal thing, but where did they send it from? How far had it travelled? Um, it had actually been posted in France, right. which is interesting. So they brought it across and but assembled it there. could have gone off at any point. Could have, well, could have done, yeah. Wow. Yeah, in the post. Um, that's a problem with letter bombs, yeah. but... On the other hand, none of the ones that, like Ruth's first one, she opened it on on a on a desk yeah. in her office, um, and uh, she was a good friend as well. Uh, and then the other, the, so that's that's the first thing that happened. Meanwhile, I'd been prosecuted for conspiracy with this odd prosecution, a private prosecution. The state didn't take it over; they could have done. Uh, okay. Uh, and the South Africans raised money for it and became quite a cause celeb. And it, you know, I nearly went to prison for it. Uh, and I ended up being advised after the prosecution case had been completed by my lawyers, by my QC and my barrister, to actually sack them and take my own defence. Really? So, because I didn't have a defence in law, but I could conduct my defence, and the judge couldn't ask me, "What is your defence in law?" Because I, you know, I'm not. Well, basically, you were guilty of conspiracy. Yeah. It was where you cut it. Yeah. Okay. And the conspiracy then was framed in such an oppressive way. It's a classic for political trials. And if you look back at the history, I, mean, I wrote a book on political trials published in the mid-80s. And conspiracy was a classic mechanism by the, by the, the state. It goes back to the Tolpuddle Martyrs. They were right. prosecuted for conspiracy right the way through um, charters, early trade unionists, suffragettes. Because if you had, for example trespass, something that was not, that was a civil offence, not a criminal offence, but you stuck conspiracy in front of it, in other words, agreeing with only one other person, or more than one other person, to do something um, deemed illegal, then it became illegal. And they reformed the law after that, actually. Mm. Uh, And you couldn't, it wasn't as oppressive, It, it subsequently has not been as oppressive since they'd reformed the law. And mine was one of the cases, the cause celebs, that actually changed that. So that was the second thing. First thing, the letter bomb. The second thing, the conspiracy trial, which is a very exhausting thing to go through for a month. Just very quickly on that, how did you get off? Um, there was a hung jury. And there were three jurors who, on the three most serious charges, which, which I could have been, certainly, because the judge was very hostile, been sent to jail for, and my lawyers expected a prison sentence. Um, they, three lawyer, three jurors at least, held out for a hung verdict. Wow. On the fourth count, which was sitting on a tennis court for two minutes, uh, even they, I mean, two two black jurors, I think, held out all the way. So it was a ten to two majority verdict. But 
the one who'd been with me on the most serious ones didn't. And so I was convicted of that and fined for 500 pounds. But, you know, it was, it was the least serious of them all. Sorry, 200 pounds. I was fined 200 pounds. Um, so I was acquitted, but it was a very hard struggle. And the jury was out for about eight hours, I think. So wow. it was pretty miserable sitting in the cell underneath the court yeah. at the time. And then out of the blue, in 1975, um, I was actually typing up my university PhD thesis at Sussex University on neighbourhood democracy when um, there was a knock on the door and I was arrested for a bank theft that I knew nothing about. Uh, it was completely bizarre. I mean, I remember asking them when I got down to the police station, where was this, this <laughs> bank theft? It was actually from Barclays Bank. Yeah. Um, but there so were two branches in Putney, Putney, near where we lived. And there were two branches of Barclays in Putney, one at one end of the high street and the other at the other end. And they could, I said, well, which one is it? And I, I knew we demonstrated outside one of them to, to get Barclays to disinvest, you know, an anti-apartheid yeah. demonstration. So I didn't even know which bank it was or anything about it. Anyway, um, one, one bizarre event went to another. The police then leaked the fact that I'd been arrested. I was then put on an identification parade, which is pretty scary thing, after it had been all over the newspapers on the Monday morning. I was arrested on the Friday and uh, kept in overnight till the Saturday. And then on, you know, on the Sunday, it, it, the news broke in the Sunday papers, Monday morning papers all over the front pages of everything. Mm. And there was the identification parade at the local police station was on Monday afternoon. In Monday morning's Evening Standard, um, Evening Standard used to come out in the morning, mid-morning in those days, um, was a picture of me saying, a front page story, picture of me, Peter Hayne due to appear on an identification parade this afternoon. And um, the bank staff confirmed in court under questioning that they'd all seen the paper. They were all very interested <laughs> in it. Because what had happened is, uh, and, and the cashier from whom the thief had snatched the money picked me out. The, um, the bank staff who chased the thief, the thief obviously looked like me, yeah. very like me. So it was a kind of best approximation to a double. Um, snatched 490 pounds worth of five pound notes, ran down the high street, chased by two or three bank staff and some schoolboys who joined the chase, then turned around and threw the money back. Right. An odd behavior for a yeah. bank thief and then disappeared. The fingerprints on it, there were fresh fingerprints on it, um, evidence given in court, police had taken the fingerprints obviously, were not mine. Nevertheless, you know, there was another seven hour jury and I was acquitted. But it was very, very, it was worse than the conspiracy charge because I always saw that as a, an extension of political struggle. Yeah. This was actually being accused of, of dishonesty, which I found really, really well, tough. I mean, the, the way that you describe it and the way that you've written about it, it sounds, with hindsight, sort of darkly comic, but at the time it must have been really scary. No, it was frightening. It, it, was, it was really frightening, and, you know, I knew that, again, I'd be jailed if it was, if, if it was uh, the case. Well, I was pretty sure the judge was a member of the MCC, um, <laughs> the Marylebone <laughs> Cricket Club, and was, again, deeply hostile, like the judge in the conspiracy case had been. Um, Judge Alan King Hamilton, he was called. He really, he subsequently wrote a, a memoir in which he sort of expressed pain at the thought that he was ever prejudiced against me. But there's no doubt he was. I mean, he, he, in his summing up, anybody who's a lawyer, invented an entirely new piece of evidence. Because in, in the judge's summing up, never been um, this evidence had never been brought into the case beforehand, that he, he surmised or speculated to the jury that because the thief had not been wearing, sorry, that the thief had been wearing a jumper right. and I wasn't. And they thought that I had, he surmised that I had actually um, put the jumper on in order to commit the the, the the theft and then taken it taken it off again. Uh, now you know 
the prosecution all looked embarrassed when this happened because they realised this is a grounds for appeal. So, you know, I certainly felt he wasn't a mate. Yeah. <laughs> so, to, uh, to fast forward a bit, uh, sort of where we started yeah. this whole whole bit, how then do you move from that period in the early 70s when you got the security services after you to then in the early 80s becoming a member of a member of parliament? Well, I'd always believed that politics, you know, as I came to sort of sort out my political ideas amidst the ferment of the radicalism, youth radicalism of the late 60s and early 70s, that my, poli- I, you know, I concluded very early on that I was a socialist, even though I was in the Young Liberals, and I was a libertarian socialist rather than a state socialist, in other words, empowerment from below rather than the yeah. state and nationalising and running everything. Um, and the, the Young Liberals were actually, we called ourselves libertarian socialists, yeah. so we were very radical and caused all sorts of problems to the senior party. But as time went on, um, you know, I, and then I went to university, started studying politics, and ironically, was the only student on the on the degree course who'd practiced politics, and it was now studying what I was supposed to have been doing, which was quite interesting. But it was fantastic because I was reading stuff I never had a chance to read, yeah. and my ideas started to kind of um, form. And you know, I realised I just couldn't stay in the Liberal Party. Yeah. I was still ceasing to be young. And I was increasingly attracted to Tony Benn and what he was saying in the Labour Party. And, uh, and then I started, in my first job, I applied for a job as a research officer for the Post Office Workers' Union and got it, although that in itself was a tale because it was never any proper interview. It was mainly the General Secretary telling... Well, there was an interview, but then it was a kind of heart-to-heart afterwards saying, it's a big risk if I appoint you. <laughs> Because it's you. Because it's me. And um, my, my, my boss is a head of research. He, laughs, he laughed about it subsequently. The only question he asked me is whether I hated cricket because he was a member of the MCC. Anyway, so that, that brought me into the Labour movement, although still as a young liberal. And then a year later, I decided to join the Labour Party. And I went to Tony Benn and went to Neil Kinnock both of whom I knew, Neil through the anti-apartheid movement, Tony I wrote to, and I'd met him once before, again through the anti-apartheid movement, and uh, they helped, you know, smooth the way. And what, I mean, but what drove you to, into, if you like, in, into politics? Um, in parliamentary into, politics? Yeah, well, I joined Putney Labour Party, and I just got involved in, <coughs> you know, community politics, bringing some of the ideas from the Young Liberals of much more campaigning at a local level, just was an activist campaigning, canvassing, and I got involved in the Labour Party. And then the um, the sitting Labour MP had been defeated in 1979, and uh, there was a selection came up for his successor. And party, and I'd never actually thought of standing. Mm. And party activists said, "Why don't you stand?" I said, "Well, you know, I'm not sure I want to do this anyway." I did, and I won it, mm. and uh, stood in '83, got beaten. Fantastic campaign, but you know. Uh, Margaret Thatcher was in the ascendant and um, the same happened in 1987 and then all my mates in Putney said you can't you can't stay here we're, we're not going to win this for a, a long time you've got to find a seat which you've got a good chance of winning yeah. and to cut a long story short I was invited to apply for the South Wales former mining constituency of Neath and won the selection pretty well on the first ballot against all the odds. It was a great experience. And the first time I travelled to Neath was the day before Nelson Mandela was released in February 1990. So it was a a, a pivotal moment in my life, really, uh, making a decision to go for the Neath selection, having met the people there, um, and travelling back early the next morning to do TV interviews as he emerged from prison in that long walk to freedom. so it was a very decisive time in my life. Yeah. But that sense of wanting to... Obviously, with the Stop the Toss, there was a very clear focus and a desire to change, you know, quite specific things, but mm. things which were, you know, um, indicative of wider, you know, um, issues. But going into politics, what, what were you hoping to achieve? In, in well... I wanted to continue the mission to change and to make a difference because I'd always been imbued um, and in fact the Stop the Tour campaign was an example of that, of actually wanting to do something. I remember 
the great South African author, when I was a little boy, 11 or 12, meeting him, Alan Payton, author of Cry the Beloved Country, and saying to me, um, I'm an all or nothing person, not I'm, I'm an all or something person, not an all or nothing yeah. person. Yeah. And I remember sort of some of the purists in the anti-apartheid sort of movement and some on the radical left especially at the time of the Stop the Tour said, but this is not fighting capitalism. This is not the main struggle, yeah. stopping sports tours. And I said, yeah, but we can win. Yeah. We can do something. And in a sense, that's what guided my subsequent um, coming in and being elected in April 19, 1991 at a by-election in Neath. was always to try and make a difference rather than just to, to go along with the flow. Uh, and I tried to do that in government when I became a government minister. I never expected to be an MP. I found myself an MP and I was kind of independently minded backbencher and probably a bit of trouble to the, the leadership. Yeah. And then Tony Blair, who cheerily confessed that he was decided to bring me into the fold rather than having me outside, um, uh, he gave me a chance to be a, a shadow minister in opposition, which I enjoyed, and then put me into government. and. You know, promoted me very high in government into the cabinet, which I would never have expected to do really interesting things and fulfilling things. The most serious one was, most important one, which has helped negotiate the settlement in Northern Ireland. I was going to ask you about that. Um, it's a shame we haven't got longer to talk about all the th yeah. There's so much to cover in all this, but Northern Ireland, I guess, was. You were there at a critical time as Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. Yeah, I came in in 2005 when the centre had collapsed. <coughs> The Ulster Unionists of David Trimble and the Social Democratic and Labour Party of John Hume and Seamus Mallon, who had been incredibly courageous, both the Ulster Unionists and, and above all the SDLP, in, in forging the path to the Good Friday Agreement mm -hmm. in 1968, which Tony Blair negotiated. Um, but by 2005, Sinn Féin were triumphant on the Catholic nationalist side, Republican side, and um, the Democratic Unionist Party of Ian Paisley, a fiery old right-winger who had always said no, were triumphant on the Unionist side. Mm. So the centre had collapsed. David Trimble lost, he'd been the First Minister briefly um, before the Assembly uh, closed down. Um, he'd lost his seat. So, the, you know, the, there was great pessimism. And I remember thinking when I came in and I said this to my new private office, I said, but look, look at the South African parallel. In the end, it wasn't the centre that did the deal. It was the two most polarised groups. Mm. It was the apartheid state that had imprisoned Nelson Mandela and Mandela and his followers yeah. who negotiated the deal. And for that reason, it stuck. So I took the view, if you could make it stick, if you could do the deal between the Democratic Unionists of Ian Paisley and, and Jerry Adams, Martin McGuinness's Sinn Féin, it really would stick because there's nobody on either side to pull it apart yeah. as it happened before. So I went about that with some enthusiasm and uh, it was uh, incredibly rewarding, incredibly exhausting but and demanding but very rewarding, uh, in a sense pinnacle to, to what I was able to do in parliamentary politics mm. and government. And it's, uh, obviously we work in, in uh, many different places trying to get the institutions of government, yeah. the structures of government to work effectively. And the two examples which, which are most often uh, cited and which lots of countries are interested in are Northern Ireland and South Africa. But it seems, I wish you could draw different lessons from, mm. from those two experiences. Mm. Because, because as you say, in many countries if you, where you've got very divided society, the people who start to compromise, who start to negotiate at the beginning, which lead the way for the more extreme forces to come in, will often disappear. They lose... They, they lose traction. And they lose votes. They lose support yes, because yes. They're, they're, all their supporters can see um, that they're having to compromise. They're yes. having to give away stuff exactly. which they were, they were believing exactly. in the first place. Yeah. But you think the, the, there is the South African model offers an alternative? They are different and complementary. Yeah. What South Africa offers is um, when both sides, well, let me rephrase this, when the white ruling elite 
decided the game was pretty well up. The black townships were becoming ungovernable. American imposed loan sanctions had started to bite, driven through by the by the increasing numbers of black congressmen in, and the women in 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 the American uh, in the American Senate and in Congress, um, and the economy was was really going downhill very fast. International investment was drying up. And the place was becoming ungovernable. Mm. Um, because although the resistance had been closed down at the time that I was most active in the early late 60s, early 70s, after Steve Biko, the great um, activist leader, uh, in had been murdered in 1977, and the year before that, the Soweto, school students had sparked off a huge eruption. Basically, the resistance started to be rebuilt, not calling itself the ANC, but linked to the ANC, yeah. uh, to Mandela's ANC. So everything was coming to a head, and essentially the white ruling elite decided that actually they'd have to talk to Mandela, and they started tentatively to do so. And what then mattered was Mandela, instead of being absolutely hardline and um, uh, sort of uh, very aggressive, became was very conciliatory, and very he was he was stuck hard to to his bottom lines, but he was very engaging, very personable, very forgiving, never forgetting. He said, but always forgive. Um, and so I think there are lessons there. That however much, however embittered you are about what's been done to you, if you want to get out of this place without violence, which was always his main aim, you mm. know, a negotiated solution, what you have to do is have give and take. You've got to treat your enemies on equal terms. You've got to give them respect, and you've got to. Um, uh, show some humility and openness. So, although he was absolute, and he refused to be bought off with various kind of halfway measures beforehand, mm. um, and so he was pretty strong on sticking to his fundamentals, and he was right to do so, and he won them all, um, and became president. Nevertheless, he did it in a way that was very, was very sort of, in, he, he was, he was embracing. So that was one of the key lessons to learn. And that it's never too late to negotiate. Yeah. Um, so that's the, one of the South African lessons. There are others. But the, the one from Northern Ireland, I think there are a whole lot of lessons. Do not impose preconditions. Preconditions for years had prevented anybody engaging, mm. you know, uh, demanding the IRA give up their, their, uh, their armed campaign. Well, they were never going to do so. Mm. Um, treating them as lepers and terrorists and, and so on and so forth, um, rather than finding ways of dialogue. Um, preconditions as what is bedeviling a solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Preconditions is what has resulted, in my view, but that's another story, in Syria being the worst Western foreign policy catastrophe of, of recent times, mm -hmm. probably second only to Iraq, because demanding Assad should go, then saying he should only stay for six months to try and get negotiations going. It's just, I just, you know, pulling my hair out in yeah. frustration. Northern Ireland shows you do not establish preconditions. Also, you try to find creative leaders, people who are willing to take, um, and, you, and you've got to be prepared to take risks. I mean, you know, we were talking to people, particularly in the early days, who'd been bombing in Birmingham and Manchester in London not so long ago, let alone Belfast and Dublin. Um, you know, a lot of horrible things were done in that, during the so-called Troubles in Northern Ireland, the 30 years of it. Really grisly, awful, awful, awful atrocities. Uh, on, on, you know, not only by the IRA, by British Army as well, but anyway, there were some horrible things done. And so you had to take risks and risk the wrath of your critics, which there remained right up until the final settlement, you know, there were even MPs who really didn't approve of it uh, at, at the time. So you've got to find leaders who, who've got the capacity to, to show courage and to lead rather than just to follow. Yeah. 
it's one of Tony Blair's great intuitive sort of feelings for people. Uh, and you've got, you can't take sides. The Conservatives have always been effectively bag carriers for unionism. You can't do that. Tony Blair was the first British Prime Minister who genuinely understood the legitimate side of republicanism. It is a legitimate ambition to reunite Ireland. You may or may not agree with it. You have to respect the unionist position as a negotiator, as I did as a Secretary of State, that they're implacably opposed to the reunification of Ireland. But you've got to understand the history and recognise that's a legitimate political objective. The methods used by the IRA were not legitimate, but the aim was. Yeah. Um, and you, you've, you've got to be genuinely, Im, not impartial, but independent and willing to see all sides. Yeah. Um, and then there are a number of other things. You've got to take risks in lots of ways, not just talking to people you may not like personally, you may dislike their politics. Um, it's difficult in terms of the court of public opinion and the media to talk to them, but you've still got to do it. You've also got to have it driven from the top. I think one of, for all the other criticisms of Tony Blair, particularly over Iraq, which are justified, um, probably, though I didn't think he ever lied, but that's another story. Um, Northern Ireland, he drove it from the top. He was always on the case, week in, week out for the 10 years he was Premier. And that's not the case in the Middle East. You just look what happens. The new American president comes in. You saw it with Obama. You saw it even a bit with Bush. You certainly saw it with Clinton. A lot of attention and investment of time mm -hmm. and effort into the Middle East peace process. Then you get towards the next, you know, the re-election and it ebbs away. You've got to keep driving it. And you can't subcontract it to your Secretary of State in America's case your foreign minister in most other countries' case. You've got to actually drive it yourself from the top. It's fascinating. I mean, it's, it, perhaps this is a point at which to finish, but um, the, I mean, the, the point of the podcast is to um, talk to politicians, people who make political change happen, about some of those insights that you get from, from your experience. And what's very striking in the sort of work that we do internationally is goes back to what you were saying earlier about when people criticised you for the Stop the Tour campaign, that, well, this isn't a fight, this is go isn't going to defeat capitalism, but it is something specific. We've got a specific it's target, tangible. and we're trying to get it to change. And this is what characterises most of our work. Yeah. We're not... There's still too much aid is focused on grand architectural redesign yeah. in new countries rather than getting the basics right. Work out what you can change, and then change it. Yeah. And you will... Political change is slow. It, it is slow. My dad had a saying, sadly now deceased, but my dad had a saying to me when I was a young, politically started awakening mind in South Africa as a teenager. He said to me, if change was easy, it would have happened a long time ago. <laughs> and that's quite profound when you think about it. It's yeah. simple but profound. And, and, and that, that point you make about you, you, get, you get something that you can actually change. It may not be the whole of a, of a new democracy's parliamentary system, but it may be one part of it. Mm. It may not be the whole system of government, but it may be how ministers can operate effectively. And I have you know, quite ex a lot of experience of that, and I have talked about it and, and given lectures and so on about it, because I think being a minister, an effective minister, is really hard. Mm. And you've seen it from inside government yeah. as well. It is hard. Yeah. And that's in you know a well-developed, long-institutionalised uh, system of government, of parliamentary government and democracy like Britain's. You imagine, well, you know, and Global Partners knows from first-hand first experience, how hard this is, even you know, in a country like South Africa. I mean, people yeah. sort of... The, the governance of South Africa... You know, this year, sort of, 2017 is is not in a good place. Mm. It's betraying a lot of the ideals and legacy of Nelson Mandela and his his um, you know the people who drove the change. But um, it's a young democracy. Mm. It's only 22 years old, 23 yeah. years old. Four elections. Yeah, 
and, and, and you know, other countries in which uh, Global Partners works similarly. So you, you pick on something, you try and make a difference there. That's always been my motto. Don't go for the grand stuff because you don't get anywhere. Mm. You, may, you may sort of uh, satisfy your own kind of ego. Sorry, that sounds pejorative, but... You I know, know exactly what you mean. Produce some grand plan yeah. with a lovely brochure, blah, blah, blah. Actually, you can, make, yeah. you can make far more difference by helping the whip's office sort itself out yeah. or helping yeah. ministers, particular ministers, who, who are interested enough, and many aren't, to actually change the way they operate. Yeah. Key civil servants and, and an up-and-coming cadre of or public officials who could maybe drive change in the future, that kind of thing, really. Brilliant. Peter, I, I, that's fantastic. Um, well, I could keep talking to you for another hour at least, but <laughs> I guess you need to go back to the, the long process of reforming the House of Lords. Okay, you know? so well, I, should, yes. I should let you get that. But Peter, thank you very much. That's a pleasure. Thank Good you. luck. Cheers. Well, I hope you enjoyed the first in the series of the Politics as Usual podcasts. We'll be back in about a fortnight's time with the next, which is with Tom Carruthers from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Not a politician, but one of the most interesting and influential thinkers and writers about politics, political change and democracy assistance around the world. And I interviewed him in Washington at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace's headquarters in February. And it proved to be a fascinating discussion about his background, how he got into this sort of work, and his approach to getting political change. I hope you're able to join us then, but until then, bye for now. Politics as Usual is brought to you by gpgovernance.net. Remember to subscribe, rate or review online.